Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. So I was prepared to write off a literal lifelong battle with insomnia to just being a part of doing more than 30 years of morning television and radio. When I dug a little deeper, it turned out there was far more to learn. So in this series, we try to help people fix their sleep, including you, by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken. Maybe we stumbled upon some answers together. Now, as we get into this week's episode, I have to issue sort of a mea culpa here. If I'm being honest, when everything exploded with the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, I thought long and hard about shutting this podcast down and the website and the book that's attached to it, just shutting the entire project down because I thought to myself, how can I realistically expect that anyone is going to be thinking about sleep right now when the world has gone to hell? Then I was reminded of a piece of research from about a year ago now that was one of the pieces of science that I wanted to talk about since this project got underway. And as you'll hear, for some unknown reason, it kept getting pushed to the back burner. And now I know what that reason is. It's because the conversation has never been more relevant and never been more important than it is right now. You're about to meet Dr. Dana Johnson from the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta. And as we speak, Atlanta is quite literally burning. But Dr. Johnson and I had this conversation on Friday afternoon. So you'll hear us get into great detail on the impact that race has on sleep. Yes, race has an impact on the quality of your sleep. I'll give you a heads up that toward the end of our time together, I bring up a nugget from Dr. Johnson's study that quite literally makes me angry, like literally angry. There's also a second part to this week's episode because starting this week, Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona will be part of the show every week talking about the latest science from the sleep world that has emerged over the course of the last seven days. So before we get there, a pretty stunning interview here with Dr. Dana Johnson. So everybody that has ever been on the show, including uh, my friend Michael Grandner, who I understand is also your friend Michael Grandner, who's coming up uh, toward the end of this week's show, he's been asked this same question five times because the standing rule is you don't get to come on the show unless you get this question. So forgive mm -hmm. me. It's the same first question that everybody that's ever been on gets, and it goes like this. How did you sleep last night? Oh, I said wonderfully. Oh, that's good. Okay, that's yes, the best answer I, I've ever gotten. <laughs> I actually have quite amazing sleep patterns. Um, I remember when I first started in the field as a doctoral student and uh, I was learning about sleep, I started feeling so guilty uh, when I didn't sleep you know, enough. And then the more I read and learned more about the negative consequences, I made it a, um, a habit. So my husband and I both have very strict sleep patterns. So I slept very well last night. <laughs> if if so, if it ever happens where there's a night where sleep doesn't show up for you, what do you do? What's mm -hmm. your go to? Yeah, which which has happened. Um, usually when I don't sleep well, it's typically something's on my mind. You know, it's some level of stress that I've dealt with from that day. So usually what I do um, is I will just get up and I'll write down what's on my mind, you know, what's what's keeping me up. I write it down. I put it there and I just try and go back to sleep. Interesting. But I, I write it down. Mm -hmm, I write it down. I find that um, taking it off of my mind, you know, putting it on paper kind of takes it off my mind. It frees up what David Allen would call psychic <laughs> ram. I don't know if you've ever uh, seen the book Getting Things Done, but David Allen that wrote that book refers to psychic ram where the minute you write something down on a piece of paper, his theory is it stops taking up space in your brain and frees up, frees up your brain to focus on other things or to mm -hmm. choose not to focus on other things. I totally believe that. I totally believe that. And, and it's usually what, what we're doing is we're ruminating, right? We're just thinking about things over and over again. So if I'm, you know, um, really thinking about my next day, it's easier for me to just write that list. You know, what it, you know, exactly what I need to get done the next day or whatever it is. And I do usually feel better. 
It's funny. Um, we had uh, this conversation, Michael Grander and I, a few episodes ago where we talked about this idea of, you know, I, I think the way Michael described it was I can remind myself 37 times to remember to pack the uh, carry on bag for my flight the next day. But at some point around time number 25 or 30, I probably should have been able to step back and go, is it really useful to keep thinking about this? Right. That is exactly right. I took a class um maybe about two years ago. And uh, it was focused on how to be uh, more productive. And one of the tips was instead of, you know, constantly thinking about I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do that. You know, if you just make that note, you know, it's just, it frees up that mind space. But also if you just get it done then, it also, you know, helps in terms of your productivity with other things. So that's the other piece. If there's something that I'm like, oh, I really need to get this done or get that done. Sometimes it's just easier for me to get it done because I won't sleep well because I'll continue to think about it throughout the night. So it's just easier, you know, if it's I needed to look at something, let me just go ahead and look at it then. I am staring at, as as we sit down this afternoon, uh, staring at an article that I have wanted to talk to you about for pretty close to a year now. And um, I, I'm amazed how many back burners I seem to have uh, while, <laughs> while a million other things compete for my attention. But this review that you and a team of other researchers put together about a year ago now, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. give people the title. It's simply this, Are Sleep Patterns Influenced by Race or Ethnicity, a Marker of Relative Advantage or Disadvantage? advantage the evidence to date and as I read through it I remember it was it was one of the first studies as I took this project on almost a year ago now um, that I thought I didn't even stop to think that different groups by race might be having yeah, different experiences with things like insomnia or other sleep disorders. But at a time right now where, as you and I talk, the entire planet is finally having a, a very long overdue conversation about race, this is right. just yet another of the things that has jumped to the attention of all kinds of people who are saying this is just another thing that we need to pay attention to because it's interesting as COVID-19 took over the public consciousness there was a lot of talk in the sleep world about sleep being declared the next global health crisis and then COVID-19 came along but since COVID-19 has come along, people are also now pointing to race and racism as Mm -hmm. being the next global health crisis. And so you and I are sitting down in an interesting time to, to unpack this study because there is a lot in here to address a lot of different race groups. Right. Right. Yeah, I would, uh, I totally agree. So We've encountered these issues over time, issues meaning that there's racial ethnic disparities in health. And um, there are several articles that have talked about some of the fundamental causes that are contributing uh, to health disparities. And so the way I have framed my work is really looking at sleep as one of those contributors to overall health disparities, particularly racial disparities. So is it a scenario and, – and I mean, like I say, there's a lot to unpack and we'll, we'll get into right. all of this. Um, mm-hmm. Is it a scenario where like so many other things, sleep feeds the other health problems and then the other health problems also feed the bad sleep, which then continues to feed the health problems, et cetera, and there's this downward spiral? Right. So I like to think of it um, in terms of a pathway. Right. If we think about a mechanism, there's certain things that happen. So if we think about um, as relevant to the current times, racism or even discrimination. So those things are tend to be stressors. So when you encounter or experience discrimination or experience an act of racism, you have a physiologic response, a stress response. And so then that can affect your sleep. 
And then when we sleep, there are many things that happen that are important for our health. So whether it's hormone secretion and whether it's rest for our blood vessels, whether it's our memory consolidation, when we have a disturbance to that, it causes our sleep to be disturbed and then we have a poor health outcome. So if, if it's memory, we're thinking about cognitive decline, for example, or if it's some damage to um, our cardiovascular system, we're thinking about a higher uh, risk of hypertension or cardiovascular disease. And so if we have some groups of or, or some populations, such as African-Americans that are consistently encountering um, discrimination and racism, other stressors, they're, they're regularly at this um, experiencing the stress at this heightened level and then consistently have disruptions to sleep, which interrupt these other factors. And so it's it's a linear um, effect. So one thing happens and then another, and then, you know, it affects your health overall. And so that's why um, I target sleep and thinking about it on the pathway, as well as some of those earlier determinants such as racism and so on. But it's just one one additional factor. So how much of these disparities in sleep duration, sleep quality, all those sorts of things, um, and again, there's a lot to unpack there still, mm -hmm. uh, how much of that is environmental versus how much of it is uh, simply a, a, a race-based disparity? Mm -hmm. So that's interesting you separated those two. And so um, most of my work is actually looking at what I call environmental determinants. And so environmental determinants are really social. So where we live can affect our health in many ways, including our sleep health. And so where we live is dictated by our social status. So where you live is based on your income, is based on your position in society, and uh, fortunately, we're at a place now uh, where we have um, lived beyond some of those laws that occurred many years ago, things like redlining, which uh, dictated people could only live in certain areas. So certain populations, African-Americans were denied mortgages um, and the ability to live in certain neighborhoods. And so these neighborhoods um, have different um, factors and structures. So things like our exposure to air pollution violent, social cohesion, all of these factors that can affect our, our sleep and our health. And so um, all of those things are really dictated. So I talked about some of the historical relevance, how we ended up in these environments. So we can think about residential segregation as dictating our environment which relates to our health now. So all that to say, I really consider them, you know, the same. These social and environmental, you know, factors are what's really, you know, contributing to a lot of these disparities that we're seeing in sleep. And so uh, to be a little bit more uh, responsive and specific to your question, the environment plays a very strong role in our sleep. And so in terms of how much um, is variable. Uh, so a lot of the research that we're doing are, is really targeted trying to quantify these things. And so what's the challenge with that? It's our environments are constructed of many um, dimensions. So you have your physical environment. So those are things like sidewalks in your neighborhood, which we know directly relate to your ability um, to walk, so the walkability of your neighborhoods, which relates to physical activity, which relates to obesity, which relates to sleep. And then there's other factors um, such as neighborhood safety. So how safe you feel at night directly relates to your sleep. And so our environment explains far more or dictates far more of our sleep and particularly sleep disparities than genetics. So I often, when I give talks um, about neighborhoods and sleep, um, usually my, my first or second slide is basically saying that our zip code is as important, if not more, than our genetic code. Wow. 
That's, I mean, uh, forgive me. I need to let a second for that to sink in because that's. Yeah, sure. Sorry. I probably said a lot there. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's massive because I'm, I'm sure that there are people who would look at if someone were just to walk up and say, well, yes, there are disparities in sleep quality, sleep duration, all those sorts of things that are very significant. They have a very significant correlation to race. And there are people who would make make the assumption, well, then that must be common among all people of a certain ethnicity. So that disparity, for example, must exist among all Asians. That uh, disparity must exist among all black people, et cetera. But Mm -hmm. what you're telling me is, if I'm understanding it correctly, Mm -hmm. that no, actually, if you boil it down, most of the difference can be attributed to some sort of social disparity or, or another along the way. Right. And so the other piece that we have to remember when we're talking about racial disparities and, you know, in this um, in in relevance to this uh, interview is racial disparities in sleep is race is a social construct. So when we're talking about race, we're really using that as a proxy for people's experiences. And so there's no genetic reason, right, that um, I should sleep different than someone else. You know, there, there's, there's some um, genetics around that. But in general, we find that our need for sleep is pretty consistent across racial groups, Americans, I would say, more specifically. So whether or not someone has additional experiences that changes that is something else. So because of your skin color, you have certain experiences, certain things like discrimination. And so regardless of your socioeconomic status, you can have experiences. So I'm a college uh, professor. I am regularly in environments, I'm also an African-American woman, I'm regularly in environments to where I am the minority. And so that can cause a level of stress as well. So there's a term called John Henryism that is uh, applied to these different stressors. So when you are in these positions and you're continually working harder, um, whether it's um, to prove your your status or whether it's um, for other reasons, but you're consistently working harder. And so that takes a, a toll on your body physiologically. But again, this all starts with your your social experiences because of your race. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. Okay, and, okay. And, and if I may... Let me sure. take let me take a very brief off ramp and then get right back to our original conversation. But mm-hmm. what what has that been like for you personally to mm-hmm. be an African American woman in what for the longest time was a very white male dominated branch of science? Yeah, um, I would argue it still is. <laughs> uh, it's. It's been interesting. Um, I will say I have been very fortunate on one hand to have mentors who some of which belong to that group um, who have used their privilege um, to make sure that I have uh, good experiences and that I'm not treated unfairly on one end of this. So I'm very, um, very lucky to have some of those experiences. The other piece of this is that I do encounter a lot of what we call microaggressions, whether it's addressing me by first name while addressing my colleagues by Dr. So-and-so, whether it's, you know, assuming I have made it to a certain point in life because of Um, affirmative action or um, assumptions, uh, other assumptions that are clearly, you know, not correct. So I have dealt with a lot of those um, microaggressions, whether it's at, um, you know, my place of work or whether it's at a conference. Um, The part of this that makes it um, 
easier to cope with, but let me be clear that none of these are okay. Um, at a certain age, many of us, meaning uh, many um, black children are unfortunately prepared for what they may encounter. Uh, my parents were very honest with me at an early age and I went to predominantly white schools and so many of these experiences, um, I honestly expected to happen. And so when they occur, which is extremely sad, I'm not necessarily surprised. What helps me currently is I have amazing uh, friends and colleagues that, you know, we can talk about these things and, you know, and um, let them go. Um, and so for some of these situations, I like to think that people aren't trying to be intentionally um, harmful, but many people have an unconscious bias. They have these views um, about certain groups of people. And so the good thing about what's happening uh, current day is that people are able to reflect on what's happening. There's an amazing thread happening on Twitter right now uh, called um, Black in the Ivory, and people are sharing their stories of microaggressions, of racism, and so on. And I've talked to some of my uh, white male colleagues, and they were um, really struck by these stories and surprised and um deeply uh, saddened by by what they were seeing. And as we have, and, and th this is the other piece, we can have these conversations now. So while I'm having these conversations and um, being able to talk about how different things are perceived, that's, that helped being able to have this partnership where we all take a role in um, addressing our privilege and addressing our role in racism. You know, whether it's individual racism, institutional level racism, uh, it exists. And, you know, unfortunately, we have, we being um, African-Americans, and I mean, I should really just speak for myself, I have figured out a way uh, to cope but that's not to say that there has not been a physiologic uh, toll that is played. So we know from data that African-Americans have a lower life expectancy, a younger life expectancy than other groups, particularly non-Hispanic whites. We are, have a higher prevalence of many chronic diseases, such as hypertension, and we're also more likely to have uncontrolled hypertension. And again, I'll say that's despite socioeconomic status. So we don't find that income is relatively protective for our health. So meaning these other exposures like stress are taking an additional toll beyond what we can protect using income. And so there's other things, as I mentioned earlier, I, I mentioned my friends, but really uh, network social support is so important. Is there a, a connection to be made, and and I'm I'm known for exceeding the bounds of sensible thinking and science uh, on occasion, so forgive <laughs> me if I go far astray here. Is there a connection to be made between the prevalence of sleep issues in, for example, the black community, and mm -hmm. also the way that COVID nineteen is disproportionately affecting that community? Because we've had many a sleep expert on this show already talking about how important sleep is as one of the pillars of your immune system. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's this talk about how if if your sleep is suffering, then your immune system is suffering and you're more likely mm -hmm. to pick up things like COVID-19. Is there a connection to be made there? Right. So we don't have the data to support that yet. But I would say it's definitely likely. I actually recently uh, co-authored a perspective uh, with one of my colleagues, Dr. Chandra Jackson, on uh, sleep disparities and COVID-19 disparities. Um, it was published, I think, just a few weeks ago in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. And in this article, we talk about that. We talk about how uh, COVID-19 could potential, potentially, uh, we could see more or a wider gap 
in um, racial disparities in sleep. And so, and then it can work the other way. So meaning because of some of these other, uh, because of these sleep disparities we're seeing, so certain populations sleeping less, they're more vulnerable to the effects of of COVID-19. But what I'll say again is going back to these fundamental reasons why we have these. So the same reasons why we're seeing these um, uh, higher rates of COVID-19 in certain populations are some of the same reasons we're seeing sleep disparities. So for example, uh, racial minorities are more likely to be essential workers. And so those same racial minorities are the ones that are more likely uh, to be shift workers and also more likely to live in these neighborhoods where they have uh, more exposure to um, toxins and so on that can affect their health. And we see that with COVID-19, a lot of this is about access, being able to get tested or being able to even receive a um a referral by your physician to be tested and having facilities close uh, to where you live and not have transportation be a barrier. The same thing happens in sleep. Um, So meaning in um, urban neighborhoods or even lower SES neighborhoods, socioeconomic status neighborhoods, we're less likely to see practicing sleep physicians. And so then when we talk about getting a sleep test, you're talking about staying overnight somewhere, right? So we're talking about a certain person who can stay overnight somewhere and be away from their family or take time from their job. So that's another mark of uh, privilege. So we're talking about a high rate of undiagnosed sleep disorders, And we're seeing the same thing with COVID, right? We're seeing people reporting symptoms, but not having a diagnosis. And so in the article that you mentioned at the start um, of this call about the essentially racial disparities, um, I talk about an article that I wrote previously, which looked at sleep apnea among African-Americans. And we saw that there was this high rate of not only um, the prevalence of sleep apnea, but a high rate of being undiagnosed and untreated. So in fact, we found that 96% of the people with sleep apnea were unaware they had this condition, Ugh. which you know translates to a number of uh, consequences. So you have sleep apnea, right, which is this condition where you have an obstruction either partially or completely in your airway. You stop breathing, you know, several times per hour. So you have this constant awakening and that relates to having a poor sleep quality. So that next day you're tired. You have a high rate of sleepiness. So then what are the consequences of sleepiness? You have a higher risk of accidents, both occupational as well as um, uh, motor vehicle accidents. Um, Sleepiness is also related to things like um, cognitive decline. It affects our mood. We can all think about times of when we're sleepy and how we feel. It can affect our diet. It can affect our decision making. And so it's it's a whole... um, line of things that happened, uh, subsequent things that happened after that. But I just wanted to draw those parallels uh, between COVID-19 and sleep disparities. They're very intertwined. And we will likely see that, um, you know, this other effect. But again, it's the same factors that are contributing, which are social factors that are contributing to these disparities. Before we get, and I'm going to come right back to where we are now in about 10 seconds, but before we get too far away from it, you mentioned the term uh, uh, unconscious bias. And I want to illuminate for people listening, if you've never taken it before, I need you to Google a term Project Implicit. It's a survey that you can take online. It's an online test that they developed at Harvard that will identify for you and it will um, it, it grants you the luxury of revealing the results to you privately because the results for so many of the people that take the test are eye-opening and 
embarrassing, if not shameful. Um, if you go to Project Implicit, you can, with this test that they developed at Harvard, identify whether or not you have a certain level of unconscious bias. And by unconscious, yeah, it means that you are biased in a certain direction and weren't even aware of your biases. And so if you Google Project Implicit or just go to implicit.harvard.edu, all the information about it is there. I, I wanted to make sure I threw that into the conversation before we got too terribly far away from it. I want to get back to what you've been talking about in terms of cognition because it, it rings so many bells with, for example, the second episode of this show, which was focused mm -hmm. exclusively on sleep and cognition with Dr. Adrian Owen from the University of Western Ontario, who did what at the time, six or eight months ago, was labeled as the world's largest study of sleep and cognition and talked about um, the impact that just even a little bit less sleep per night gives you. And we talked about it in terms of you brought up uh, decision-making. And mm -hmm. decision-making, people seem to think that it has these large-scale ramifications, buying and selling a company, a house, this or that marriage or whatever. But decision-making as well and the kind of decision-making that can be most impacted by sleep is simple things like is now a good time to change lanes on the highway. Exactly. Exactly. It could be the changing lanes. It could be, should I have a candy bar or should I have a salad? You know, it yeah. can be, should I take my medication now or should I not? Well, Do I remember to take my medication and so when you boil down sleep duration alone as part of your review and, and you mm -hmm. shine a light on the difference between the white community and the black community in terms of even just sleep duration and, and there's a, a almost a 48-minute difference there on an average <sighs> night and you think about – I mean, I think to myself, what I wouldn't give every night for 48 minutes of extra sleep, but this exactly. is just baked into the experience every day for the black community. Exactly. And, you know, another just to drive home that that difference, you know, think about sometimes when people wake, they hit snooze. Right. So snooze is usually eight, 10 minutes and they tend to feel a little bit better. Right. So just having that little bit of time. So think about 48 minutes, how much you can get done during that time. So it's actually quite a wide uh, gap. And so and it, it, it's really problematic. And, and so and I, I think you're you're specifically talking about um, uh, for certain groups. But I also want to highlight. So I've talked a lot about. Uh, African-Americans, which tends to be uh, the majority of my work. But there's other populations that we talk about in that article, uh, racial minorities. We talk about Native Hawaiians, uh, Alaska Natives, and so on, who are also uh, getting very, very short um, or sleeping very short periods of time and have um, poor sleep quality. And so we're seeing this across several groups, Hispanic populations, Asian. And so I just wanted to, um, you know, add that, that point. Yeah, because as you start to go through, I mean, I'm, I'm focusing on one specific paragraph in, in this entire review that it talks about um, on average sleep duration 399.5 minutes in the black community. Then um, very close behind the Asian community, 409 minutes, Hispanic, 411. And then there's this enormous gap after that from all those uh, racial minorities. Then a whole half an hour later are the white people. And here's the other thing that jumped out at me from this review that you did. And, and it speaks so much and and it's on some levels it makes me angry that out of all of these different populations the white people who are the ones that get the most sleep are also the ones that complain the most about how little sleep they're getting yes <laughs> uh yeah that is that is very true and so um this would actually be a great uh conversation to have with michael um, so 
the complaint piece is really getting at insomnia symptoms. And so um, black people, or, or, or at least in the, um, in the studies that we reported, uh, tend to under-report insomnia. So they under-report problems um, with sleeping. And so that's for many reasons. And so our article that uh, Michael has talks about how the way the questions are phrased, um, they're phrased in a way that implies judgment. And so um, there's some social de- desirability there. So meaning um, you don't want to be perceived as lazy. And so, and I want to just add a little bit more historical context here. One of my colleagues at uh, Emory, uh, Ben Reese, he wrote this uh, book called uh, Wild Nights. And um, he also talks about, he's a uh, historian, really. He's the chair of the English department. Um, but he talks about um, some, some of the reasons for sleep disparities, which date back to slavery times, where um, pictures of black people sleeping were labeled as lazy. And so this stereotype has emerged that if you sleep enough, so really the amount that you need in order to be healthy and operate and have a good quality of life implies that you are being lazy. And so when we find that when we give some of these questionnaires that that even touch a little bit to any level of judgment around sleeping, that it tends to get underreported. So they're more likely to say, oh, I don't, I don't have any sleep problems. You know, the quality of my sleep is great. But then when we measure it, we see, as you've mentioned, in comparison to uh, the white sample, their sleep quality is, is far worse. So they have a lower sleep efficiency, more wakefulness after sleep onset, a longer sleep latency. So meaning it takes them longer to fall asleep, but are less likely to report that as a problem. But again, it's all because of that historical piece and trying to do, um, you know, what's best not to perpetuate stereotypes at uh, sometimes your own detriment. Yikes. Ah, there's there's so much Mm -hmm. to unpack from this study alone that has, I think, so much to contribute to the conversation that is going on now all over the planet about race. And and in in some ways, I'm glad that you and I didn't get a chance to connect until now because I feel like your study might even be more relevant now than it was when it came out a year ago. Um, and I don't, I don't know if that's occurred to you or not, but it's just one of those where there's so much here that I think puts – a lot of this into perspective that, uh, you know, you've got certain uh, racial minorities uh, that are at a disadvantage before they even get out of bed from right. things that are so completely beyond their control. And, and it's, it's, it's upsetting. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry. I, there, there's a moment or two where I've heard you describing some of this where I had to mute my microphone for a second because I was getting choked up listening to it. And, mm-hmm. and so that there are people like you out there that are shining lights on this. And you even tell me about the, the new research that came out a few weeks ago. There are so many conversations about this that need to happen that uh, I'm, I'm grateful that you're doing the work. And I'm glad we had a few minutes to sit down this afternoon and and shine a light on this because this will add a lot of context to the conversation, I think, for people. Thank you. I think this is um, a good time in society because people are, they're listening. People are uh, acknowledging what is happening. We are seeing evidence right in front of us of what's What's been happening, really, uh, it's just now it's it's at the forefront. And so if we can take this time and realize, you know, how sleep, poor sleep in particular, disproportionately affects certain populations. And there are things that we can do to address that. It's our responsibility to do that. 
you know, health should not or having good, good optimal health should not be based on your race. Yeah. We all should be afforded uh, health and uh, healthy sleep patterns. And um, so we have to do what we can to accomplish that for everyone. Well, and it's interesting, too, just as a, a one more thing to throw into the conversation and for people mm-hmm. to think about, you know, there is that segment, that privileged segment of the population who, if insomnia is on their radar, they have to look at things like buy a different mattress, get a fluffier pillow, those sorts of things. And and there are massive segments of the population for whom sleep is a much bigger problem that a new mattress or a new pillow is so far down the Mm -hmm. list of things that need to change. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. I, I'm, I, I feel like a better human being for having had the chance to listen to you talk for half an hour. Thank you for this. Thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate you inviting me uh, to talk about uh, something that is very important and, um, something that that means and matters a lot to me. So thank you. That's Dr. Dana Johnson from Emory University. A link to the specific study that we talked about is waiting for you on our website at thesnoozebutton.com. Now, on to the first in a series of regular appearances from my friend Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona. Um, Except this conversation took place under kind of unusual circumstances. All right, Michael, uh, you've been on the show almost as many times as I have, so <laughs> you know the drill by now. You know question one is coming at you, and it's unavoidable. How, uh, now, there's current events probably playing into the answer to this question. How'd you sleep last night? You know, I slept okay. Um, I, I didn't go to bed as early as usual because we had some stuff going on at the house, but um, woke up around my normal time and, and getting through today okay. Okay, so there. We, let's talk about the stuff going on at your house. Let's peek behind the curtain for a second because yeah. as we sit and record this, you are looking out, literally looking out the window and trying to figure out if you are about to be evacuated because there are forest fires near you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's the thing with Arizona where we don't get much in the way of hurricanes and tidal waves, but we do get fires. And there's a fire up on the mountain um, that's north of us. And... Um, you know, we got some pretty, pretty incredible pictures last night uh, that really didn't do it justice. You know, we can see it pretty clearly. We're still hopefully far enough away that we're going to be safe. But, you know, we've got people less than a half a mile from us that have been evacuated already. So, you know, we're, we're, we've got a bag packed and, and we'll see what we have to do. Okay, so I'm guessing this is going to test everything you've ever learned about sleep because if I'm in your shoes right now, I can't imagine how I'm going to be able to quiet my mind enough to get to sleep tonight. Do you have a plan for that? Well, so that so this was last night where, you know, even inside the house was smelling a little bit smoky and so we're like, "All right, what do we need to do? We're not going to we're certainly not going to stay up all night." Um, and we need to get to sleep because if anything needs to happen in the middle of the night or tomorrow, we want to be as rested as possible. So um, you know, we double checked everything around the house, um, you know, got, you know, made sure everyone knew where all the fire extinguishers were just in case we needed a path somewhere and, um, kept one nearby and, you know, knowing that we weren't in the zone that was likely to get more immediately evacuated anyway, just, you know, kept the phones nearby, um, and, uh, and it took a little bit longer to fall asleep than usual, um, but eventually did. Um, and, you know, here we are today. And, and the good thing is, you know, the, the thing that I always tell people is that things will happen. And, and losing some sleep once in a while is normal. I, I don't think I've ever met anybody who's never lost sleep over anything ever. Um, and the key isn't to avoid that at all costs. The key is to get to the point where you're resilient to it, where, you know, my sleep is good enough that, you know, give me a couple nights to be worried, you know, and, and I can I can handle that okay without being thrown for, for a loop. You know, we'll see what happens after a couple nights. Um, you know, we'll see how much they get contained today or tomorrow or by the weekend. Um, and, you know, we'll play by year. But, I mean, that's the key, though, is, you know, one of the things I told myself was, okay, what can I do? Let me do everything I can. Sitting up worrying is not helpful. 
Um, actually, the most helpful thing I could be doing right now is sleeping after I've made all any preparations and did whatever, you know, signed up for whatever alert systems that I needed to sign up for, check the county websites and all that stuff. All right, I did everything useful I could do. Um, there's literally nothing else I can do right now that's helpful uh, except for get some sleep. And, and that was one of the things I would tell myself, you know, as I was trying to fall asleep but, uh, of, of you've done everything you could, now the most useful thing you can do is just, just take a deep breath and relax and, and be prepared for tomorrow. Is this useful? That phrase that came up well, last time you and I chatted, which I feel oh, yeah. like is about five or six weeks ago now. Yeah. Um, and I had so many people reach out after that aired and, and talking about that, you know, using, adopting that phrase. Is this useful uh, going forward to try and get rid of the things that might be keeping them awake? So, And it's legit. Um, I mean, that's what I did last night. Like, what, what can I do to be helpful right now? And I did all that. And then what can I do that can, I can obsess a little bit and check all the news, make sure I didn't miss anything? But like at some point, it was like, look, there's nothing else I can do that's helpful right now besides actually get to sleep. And that actually made me feel better about sleeping. You know, it helped me let go because I knew that what I was doing was actually proactive and investing in success rather than just being reactive and um, just obsessing. So Michael is going to be a guest on the show on a weekly basis going forward. Uh, and we picked an interesting week for you to do this <laughs> to sort of kick this off. You're just kind of taking the temperature you know, of there, where there are no sleep weeks research this year that is. Aren't interesting. There, there are no <laughs> weeks this year that haven't been interesting. In some yeah. It, well, yeah, that you, oof, you can say that again. Um, and so, I, I mean, I don't know if as you're literally staring out the window at the smoke, you've had a chance to sort of reflect on the things that have, have sort of crossed your radar in the last week or so that you found interesting or compelling or that stuck out to you? So, I mean, a lot of stuff is starting to come out regarding sleep and COVID. Um, a lot of the early studies are starting to trickle out and they're really interesting to see. And um, there's a few in particular that, that have jumped out. One is um, looking at using some using a, a big survey data set, looking at sort of what what had happened to sleep duration and sleep timing um, in a this came from a European population. This was from I think the senior author on this was uh, Christian Kayochin. But um, basically, what they were looking at is how how people have been processing their sleep during this time on average. And, um, and, and it's interesting to see that for all the stories that people have, you know, what is happening with the plurality of people? Um, and so, that, so that's sort of interesting to see. I mean, then there's, there's a few studies coming out also looking at, in particular, sleep and mental health. Um, and, and looking at how important it, it is, how important sleep is in mental and mental health is during this time in particular. That, um, that right now a lot of people are stressed out and some people are sleeping more, some people are sleeping less. Uh, the ones that are having more trouble with sleep um, are the ones that are um, more stressed out. And, and that, see, that, that this, this connection between poor sleep and mental health sort of feeding onto each other seems to be something that's happening in a subset of the population. Um, and I, I don't know, there's, there's been a bunch of things coming out from a couple different groups looking at this. Um, I mean, uh, of course, I, I can tout the one that I helped out with that was led by Scott Kilgore showing that... Um, increased anxiety about COVID led to increased suicide ideation and that the degree and, and that that was largely explained by how worse you were sleeping. So if you were sleeping worse, that tended to drive some of those poor mental health outcomes. But there are other studies that are looking at similar things. So that's sort of what's been jumping out to what I've found really interesting because in my mind, you know, there's a whole infectious disease story here. but. At, at, at my core, I'm not an infectious disease person. Like I'm a mental health person, and and I care about 
where people at are at in their life and, and their story and, and all the things that are going on right now and how people are dealing with it. And, and it's really interesting to see that there are these subgroups of people that are dealing with this in different ways and they're important. But it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, as I continue to remind people, I'm just a layperson who has a bunch of really smart friends. Um, it, it seems to me that these things feed off of each other so that if this it's like the three-legged stool you know if you think of your immunity to COVID-19 as one right. leg of the stool your mental health as it relates to suicidal ideation is another leg of the stool you pull sleep out as that third leg and both of those things can suffer can they not exactly and that's the idea and especially from the perspective that sleep itself is relatively modifiable where there are things you there are things you can do to help yourself sleep better um, that are probably more um, more readily accessible than other things you can do in other domains of health which makes sleep very convenient um, where you can do things tonight to be sleeping better tonight right um, as opposed to mental health where it might take a little more time or there might be things you can do in general but you know I just see sleep as as not just an important leg of the stool but also a, a door that's slightly more open maybe than some of the others where you know it's hard to talk yourself in or out of relaxing but you can by just by changing your behavior whether you feel it or not can, can improve your sleep um, so I, I think that's that's one important message for, for everything going on right now is that everybody has had their sleep change. You know, I don't think I've talked to a single person in the last few months whose sleep has not changed at least a little bit for one in one direction or another, um, periodically or regularly, something. Um, I think there's something um, pretty amazing about how universal that is. And I, and I think that that shows that this is an important aspect of this whole experience that yes um, infections and and lung function and how it impacts the heart and the brain are, are all probably more proximally important but you know how it's impacting sleep might be more universally important because who knows what's going to happen a year from now how is this going to change things not just in terms of how how people's sleep patterns are going to change but also, how does this change society's interaction with sleep, where you have many people who now don't have to get up so early to commute to work? You have a lot of kids who didn't have to get up so early to go to school. Um, you have people staying up later than they used to. You have um, variability in sleep decreasing, where we don't have as much of the weekday versus weekend difference uh, in, in people. Um, and you know that, and that's one of the things that this... Um, that, that this paper out of Europe showed was that was to some degree um, there, there's, there, there's a change in how we relate to our own sleep and our own scheduling. And I wonder how much of that's going to stick. Some of it, I, I bet some of it will at least a little bit. Do you think that what's going on now and what we've done as a result of COVID-19 is going to make it uh, an easier case to get children's school times pushed later? Because I know a lot of states are still working on it. California has adopted it. They're phasing it yeah. in over a long period of time. But do you think that's going to make an easier case? Well, one way that I think it might is we have now put a whole bunch of adolescents through a natural experiment of what happens when we delay school start times. And if anyone's tracking information, you know, and they can model things like um, mental health or something over the time, and you can see the degree to which someone's sleep was delayed a little bit or got lengthened a little bit or something, can you model how that maybe made them more resilient against something? I mean, the data is out there somewhere. Um, people are collecting it. And, and all it takes is, is a few people to look at their data set under this lens to say, um, rather than do this one school district at a time, one intervention at a time, what happens when you look at the population level? So if you say added 20 minutes at the population level, that doesn't sound like much, but if you then improved outcome, I'm just making up numbers, if you improve outcomes by say 5%, uh, on a person by person basis, that doesn't seem like much, but moving 5% of the entire population of millions of people 
you're talking about not only um, thousands of people who have their academics improve, graduate versus not, people who are getting, who, who need care versus people who don't. Um, I mean, you're talking about huge changes um, with relatively small movements of the needle when, you're, when they're happening at the population level. So I guess my answer is, will this help make a better case? The data that would help it make a better case is probably out there, and, and there are people collecting it, and I'm really excited to see what comes out. Would it be easy? And and this is where I, I, this question is going to get um, people who do what you do for a living and all the other science nerds rolling their eyes uh, at, at, at the idiocy of the question. But I'm going to throw it out there anyway. Would it be I would think it would be really easy at this stage when so many people are still working from home, when you've got kids that may or may not even be going back to a school building come September, I feel like it would be easy to use something like, for example, the the cognitive tests that are over at Adrian Owen's website at Cambridge Brain Sciences, um, where we can actually do tests of cognition on a website and you can repeat the test a bajillion times over and we could just flood the internet with that test and get all kinds of people from every walk of life from all over the planet taking that test and you say we're putting kids through this this interesting study we could actually make it an official study and 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 have people when they clock in for school or clock in for work or whatever invest a couple of minutes in answering the questions about last night's sleep we figure out how much sleep they got we, they do a quick test of cognition and then they're off to the races with the rest of their day how hard is it to do something like that on a big scale? Um, either not at all or very, I guess. Um, but you know, I, I'm saying this sort of half-jokingly, that I, I think you're right that there's a huge opportunity for big data, for being able to collect big data here. What it requires, for, for, if you have the capacity to do something like this, um, having a large-scale data set like this could be relatively easy to put together if you have the capacity um, and if you have the, the infrastructure in place. And, and there are some people who are, who are doing stuff that's very similar to what you're saying. Like this European study that I was describing was, was sort of similar where they already had this infrastructure in place. There's a, um, there's a great study coming out of uh, mostly out of Boston College um, and that one is going to probably be one of the better ones that comes out because they, they started, they were one of the first to start and they're tracking people with a whole bunch of measures over time. Um, but I'm sure that, that the study you're talking about is existing somewhere, probably a couple different places, though probably not at the scale that you're thinking is possible. Um, it probably is possible. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm just saying there, there's probably a bunch of these out there where people are leveraging their existing infrastructure to have people do tasks. But um, you also bring up a really, really important point that what would be extra compelling is, is finding a way to not just ask people subjectively about sleep and, and their experiences, which is the easiest thing to do, and it's the best way to get large numbers of people, and it's not useless data, it's still useful, um, but being able to pair that with some sort of testing. And um, you're right that there are online test batteries that are good enough to be able to detect stuff like this, um, and at least in large numbers, that um, it would be great. I, if, if people could be implementing this, like here's a link, click on this, spend five minutes doing this every morning or every afternoon or whatever it is you do and, and track it over time. The key here isn't just finding lots of people to do it, it's looking at repeated measures and doing it a number of times so you can see as sleep went up, did this go up? As sleep went down, did this go down? I mean, you could look in lots of people cross-sectionally, where it's like people who went, who slept more scored like this and people who slept less scored like that. But um, it's much more powerful to look at change over time and how change predicts change. If, um, you, uh, if, if you're curious about a study like this one and you're listening right now and you're thinking, I, I, I want to explore where stuff like this is being done. I Two things I'll suggest to you. One, go back and listen to episode two of this show, uh, which is with Dr. Adrian Owen. Yep. Um, yep. And, and in there, we talk about a study that he did with Cambridge Brain Sciences and the University of Western Ontario that literally involved hundreds of thousands of people um, who took these online 
tests of cognition, um, and and those tests of cognition were put up against their own. Um, uh, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Their own evaluation of their own sleep. Uh, and and they drew some conclusions from that. And from what I understand from Adrian, that thing is scalable. It's been scaled to a large degree before because of this huge project that Cambridge Brain Sciences did with the BBC. Um, so I would I would point people who are interested in, in looking into this a little further in the direction of I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but the, the website is real easy. It's CambridgeBrainSciences.com and you can look up right there on their website. They're free online cognitive tests that you can literally repeat day after day after day. And um, as it says on the homepage of their website, uh, the over 10 million of them have been performed so far and more and more of them every day. And they're tests of cognition that have been used in hundreds of peer-reviewed studies. So it's, it's worth having a peek at, but it would be fun, like you say, Michael, to get, I mean, this is a golden opportunity for big data. If we can just figure out how to leverage the fact that so many people now are sitting in front of computers who might normally be spending that available time commuting or what have you. So it, it'll be an interesting challenge. I'd love to see somebody pull it off. Yeah, there's also the, the Sleep Research Society um, website, which is just sleepresearchsociety.org. That's the main organization of sleep scientists. Um, they also have in their in their news section, you'll see things, listings of ongoing studies and, and people can search um, for announcements of, of sleep-based online research studies where, where people are trying to recruit people to just let's get as many data points as we can while we can. Um, and if you know you can you can search through Twitter, you can search through on, on the SRS's website. Um, there's there's a number of studies out there, and so most of them are relatively low impact, where they probably don't require too much, but they usually want people to either fill out a survey or um, take some measures a few different times to track change over time. But yeah, this is a great time to get involved in research where you get to be part of the answer. I'm going to uh, let you go and deal with whether or not you've got to evacuate, <laughs> but I do want to throw one other thing into the mix because there was sure. a study that popped up that crossed my radar. Uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know yet. Uh, you and I have, have spent an awful lot of time sitting in front of microphones together, and, and I'm interested in the things that catch both of our attention. I yes. think this may have been actually a study that you perhaps retweeted a link to. I don't know if you're okay. where I got this study from, but it involves uh, one researcher from John Hopkins and six from various universities and hospitals in Australia. And the title of the study goes like this, uh, Cannabinoid Therapies in the Management of Sleep Disorders, a Systematic Review of Preclinical and Clinical Studies. And basically what this review that goes through a ton of uh, 14 preclinical studies, 12 clinical studies, and basically draws the conclusion that we don't know enough yet about whether cannabis, THC, any of those kind of products actually do a darn thing for anybody's sleep. Does that does that ring a bell for you? Yeah, I know. I know which paper you're talking about. It was in uh, Sleep Medicine Reviews, which is basically a journal of, of where people summarize the literature in a certain area and they write a whole review on the topic, a state of the art review. And yeah, um, the, the thing about the thing about cannabis research and sleep is is that. Um, my reading of the data, similarly, is that it's it's murky. It's not that it's clearly some sort of silver bullet, um, and it's also not clearly nothing either. There's there's something there, but it looks like um, it's complicated. Um, I think it's more complicated than would be convenient. Um, but it probably depends on the strain, it probably depends on the dose, it probably depends on the timing, and it looks like people have a lot of individual differences in how they process these things. So, um, like with caffeine, some people, they, they'll have a small amount of caffeine and it keeps them going all day, and some people can drink large amounts of caffeine to no effect. You know, and, and like with, it just seems that here, that here you have a situation where people tend to react differently. And so finding a systematic signal in a lot of noise 
is harder than you would think. And, and, and that's, I think, the take home message from that study, which was, you know, when we look at the whole landscape, um, the story isn't totally clear, is the message that, you know, it would be nice if it were clear, then we'd know what to do. Um, it's not clearly good. It's not clearly bad. It's a little murky. And, and our task, and I say uh, the royal hour, like the task of the research community is let's sort some of this stuff out and detangle some of this stuff and figure out what works, what doesn't work. But clearly a blunt approach isn't the best way because it's going to be super noisy. Did you actually just say a blunt approach? Really? Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was gold. I'm, I'm keeping that. That's uh, on that note. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, uh, best of luck with the rest of your evening. Um, I, I hope to be able to report nothing but good things going forward, and and I hope you get to stay put. Uh, and that the biggest problem for you over the course of the next few days is how to get the smoke smell out of the house. My my fingers are crossed for you. All right. Thank you so much. My fingers are crossed too. Hoping we get to at least stay put. And everyone stays safe and, and, you know, they get this under control. But, you know, such as such as 2020, I guess I get to punch this hole in my 2020 bingo card. Oof. There you go. My friend, Dr. Michael Grandner, first of a series of uh, appearances he's going to be making on the show. Uh, a regular guest every week talking about what's new in sleep science in the past week. Um, go to the snoozebutton.com for a uh, not only the show notes where you'll find the link to the study that we talked about with Dr. Dana Johnson about race and sleep, but you can also uh, leave a question there for our panel of sleep experts. Easy way to rate and review the show. You can leave us your feedback. The links to all our social media profiles uh, are there as well. And you can even support the show if you like with a donation to help keep it commercial free. Keep the doors open, as it were. Uh, if you're crunched for time but you love the information, there are nine-minute versions of every episode with a different podcast called the snooze button express and you can find it in the same app that you're listening to this one right now back with more next week until then my name is neil headley hey get some sleep would you